0: Well, good afternoon. My name is Jarrett Stevens. I'm one of the pastors here at, uh, at Soul City Church. I'm not famous, so you can't count me in that conversation. I'm so glad that you're here this afternoon. And uh, I really, as Kurt said, I love this time of year. I am so grateful for what we have to celebrate at Easter, which is really the, the center of the Christian faith, which is Jesus Christ who came from God to pay a price for our sin that we could not pay so that we could have life with Him. I mean, this is what we hang all of our hope upon. And this is why we celebrate and go so big at Easter is because we have much to celebrate. And so I want to let you know that our uh, staff, our entire team, have been praying for you. We've been praying for you. And I know there's a lot of folks who are part of our church. who are kind of kicking the tires of faith for a little bit, kind of wondering, you know, what this whole faith thing is all about. Our prayer is that you would, this Easter, uh, enter into a relationship with Jesus, uh, that your life would be changed by His life. And we are praying specifically for your friends that you are inviting to come uh, and experience, either on Saturday or on Sunday. Hey, we're right there with you, friends and neighbors that we're inviting. And I'll I'll just be honest, you know, there can be nerves around that. For me, it's like, I kind of look at it this way, like, what do I have to lose? I know who I am, and I know what God is doing in my life. I've got nothing to lose when it comes to telling people about what God can do in someone's life. Because I can look at my own life and say, man, if God can change my life, I, I want you to know that he can change yours. So we are praying for your friends that you would not come here alone next Sunday, but that you'd be surrounded by friends and family. We've got a person we've been praying for and hoping that this will be the weekend that they enter into a relationship with Jesus. And she stopped me and told me this morning, she said, hey, I want to let you know, I'm bringing like a dozen people with me next week. I can't wait for them to hear the message. I'm like, I can't wait for you to hear the message. And so this is, it's an exciting, exciting time. And we've kind of focused our uh, attention over the last week and over the course of this month at looking at the events that lead up to the cross and even beyond the cross, specifically in the back half of the book of John, the second half of the gospel of John. John has a very unique perspective into the life and ministry of Jesus. And so we're kind of camping out there, and today's no exception. We're going to look at a very important moment, in fact, two moments that are directly connected to each other. As Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem on a day that we've come to call Palm Sunday, and as he eventually makes his way to a table, which is at the center of the story of the Christian faith. And so we've set the table today, and our hope is that you would come to Jesus as you are today and experience him maybe like never before. Kurt had uh, asked the question, who's the most famous person you've met and how did it go? I don't know why it gets weird. I don't know who you think is famous. I bet there's people you think are famous that I'm not impressed with or people I think are famous that you could care less about. But anytime you're around someone that you think is important, it gets weird for some reason. You get nervous or whatever, right? That doesn't typically happen for me, but it can definitely happen for me. I've been able to meet people that I would consider famous. Maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. W- one of the best sort of famous encounters I had was with uh, one of my favorite rappers. He's a Chicago rapper, so I love him. His name's Common. And uh, I don't know if you know Common. I love Common, I'm a rapper, actor, entrepreneur. I model my life after him. And, so, <laughs> and, so, and so, I, so I had the opportunity to hang out with him before a concert, before a show and, uh, here in Chicago. And so I was hanging out backstage and playing it cool, just talking to Common. His mom works in CPS, so we were talking all about CPS and hanging out. And then right before the show, he goes, hey, pastor, pastor, why don't you come over and pray for us? And I was like, you got this. I was, I was ready for that. I had been born for that moment. It all led up to that moment in my life. And so I had everyone grab hands. And we hold hands, and we're sitting around the circle. And I mean, something came over me. And I was praying for Common and praying for his crew and praying for what they were about to do. And we got to the end of the prayer, and everyone started clapping for my prayer. And I was like, why don't they do this at my church? I didn't say that out loud. And so, so, so it went really well. And he says, he looks over, his body, he's like, hey, hey, we should get the pastor to come on tour with us. And I'm telling you, there was a second, followed by several hours, where I seriously considered cashing all this thing in and going on the road with Common, just as his full-time prayer, just whatever it takes. That that went well, as far as I'm concerned. There there was a moment where I met another rapper. I met uh, in New York. Uh, My friend Josh and I were in New York, and we met uh, we met Diddy. Uh, Pete, Pete, just pick a name. We met him, And, and, and well, met him in the sense that we stood outside the Bad Boy Entertainment offices for. Uh, two hours waiting for him to come out and he eventually came out and like walked right in front of us but like literally right before he came out his bodyguards came and pushed Josh and I up against the wall like pushed us back and so when Diddy came out I just said hey Diddy like that like you know remember me I'm the guy who listens to your music and so and so he he, he, he kind of gave me one of these I was like that's Diddy that's how he acts I love you know my friend Diddy and and as I was enjoying that moment my friend Josh shows out what up dog Amateur, <laughs> amateur. I was like, man, you just killed me and Diddy's moment. So I don't tend to get like, you know, too nervous or flustered around like people that I consider famous, except uh, when I when except when I met Derrick Rose. Um, Derrick Rose used to play basketball <laughs> for the Chicago Bulls. Back when he was playing basketball, I went to a game one night, and I was, I was back, and I was kind of where he was at. He was going to get to his car, and I, I just, you know, I love D. Rose, and so I, I went up to him to just introduce myself and say, hey, I'm like, hey, D. Rose, this is a really good game. That's, that's literally a direct quote of what I said. This is a really good game. I, don't, I mean, it, he kind of looked at me and got in his car, and I'm like, that went well, and uh, Well, I don't know what that is. I don't know who you've met. Maybe you've met people you consider more famous than that, but something happens. We get really weird around people that we think are famous, which is really interesting because we live in a celebrity-obsessed culture right now. We live in a very interesting time in human culture in general where we are obsessed with celebrities, and we have had this really interesting dynamic and relationship with people that we don't know, that we idolize is that we kind of raise them up, and we kind of put on them all of our expectations that we have for them without ever knowing them, and we hang all of our expectations, and as soon as we find out that they're just like us, or that they don't live up to our expectations that we have, or maybe they're more messed up than us, what do we do? Uh, We grab them from that throne, and we throw them in the gutter, because they didn't meet our expectations that we had for them, and then they become the pun of so many late-night jokes, see? We live in a really interesting time where we can so quickly elevate and idolize people. And then as soon as they disappoint our expectations, we throw them aside to the curb. Now, interestingly enough, a couple thousand years ago when Jesus walked this earth, he faced a very similar moment. We're going to look at a moment in the life of Jesus where his followers and fans had elevated their expectations of who they thought he was to pretty high level. And Jesus lovingly, greatly disappointed them. We're going to look at a moment where Jesus' followers kind of threw a red carpet treatment for him, not because he desired it, but because they demanded it. And their heart towards him in that moment reveals something that I think is in every one of our hearts, that God wants us to pay attention to this Easter. And his heart towards them and what he did in that moment reveals the heart of God, which I hope you actually get a glimpse of in our time together today. So I'm going to ask you to grab a Bible and, and turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. If you brought your, brought your own Bible, fantastic. If not, we've got you covered. There should be a blue Bible in your seat back or right in front of your seat. Would you grab that? And in the blue Bible, it's page 750. You can turn to 750. It's John chapter 12. Let me give you some context, and then we're going to get into a couple of verses of these two very unique, distinct, but connected moments in the days leading up to the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, let me give you some context into it. John chapter 12. So Jesus had just come out of the moment that we looked at last week where Jesus had raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. This is one of the greatest and last miracles in the life of Jesus before the cross. And so that actually gained him a lot of fans and followers, got a lot of likes on Instagram for the Lazarus picture. And so, Jesus, like people are coming out now, and Jesus is actually making his way into the city of Jerusalem. And he's heading there ultimately, because he knows what awaits him there. There was a plan and a plot to actually end Jesus' life. He was such a threat to the religious establishment that they thought we can kill the movement if we kill the man. And so they had put into motion a plan to end his life. And so this is right in the thick of that. He comes into this city of Jerusalem, which is really like the religious kind of capital for that culture in that day. And he's coming into the town of Jerusalem the week before Passover. And this is a very important holiday. The context matters here. He's coming in the week before Passover. Now, what was Passover? Passover was a celebration that the people, the Jewish people of God, celebrated for hundreds and hundreds of years, for generations, that marked the moment when God delivered the Israelites from the hands of their oppressors, the Egyptians. You're familiar with the story? Ten Commandments, Prince of Egypt. You've seen the movie? God delivers his people from Egypt, and they celebrate through Passover how God literally, Passover, when the angel of death came and wiped out a bunch of the Egyptians. They were spared and saved. And so every year, this time of year, they would mark that and remember how God had liberated them from their oppressors. And now here we are, hundreds and hundreds of years later, and Israel is back under oppression again. They are being occupied by the Roman Empire. Rome's in charge, and the people of Israel want a king to come and liberate them once more. Now, during Passover celebration, the city of Jerusalem would swell in its population. Historians, theologians, archaeologists believe that around this time in history, the city of Jerusalem housed on a normal day about 50,000 residents or so. But during the weeks that led up to Passover and the weeks after Passover, the city, the population within the city, would swell to around 120,000 or so folks. I mean, the city would just triple almost in size. Think about it, that's like, That's like having the Blackhawks victory parade in the middle of the Chicago Marathon during Lollapalooza. Like Like that's what's happening. So many people are in the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus is there right in the thick of it all. And he comes into the city of Jerusalem on a day that we have come to call today Palm Sunday. That's not what it was called on the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Jesus entered into Jerusalem a week before Passover on a day that was called Lamb Selection Day. Now on Lamb Selection Day, what a person would do, what a family would do, is they would go and select a pure and blameless lamb that would be offered in sacrifice on Passover. That's kind of the system and the structure of how it worked back then that only the blood of an innocent lamb could cover, you know, ceremonially cover over the sin of a person. And so a family would go and there was great anticipation on Lamb Selection Day. This is a... People get very excited because they're going to pick the lamb that's going to symbolically cover over their sins and bring about redemption for them. There's a lot of excitement on Lamb Selection Day. And here comes Jesus into the city of Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day. What was it that John the Baptist, his cousin, said just a few short years before? Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ is entering into Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day as God's perfect Lamb, as God's selection for who would take over and take on the weight of the sin of the world. Jesus enters into Jerusalem like a lamb. But the people who had gathered there wanted a lion. And so let's see what Jesus gives them. John 12, verse 12. This is Jesus about to enter into the city of Jerusalem. The next day, a crowd had come for the festival, Passover. And they'd heard that Jesus was on his way into the city of Jerusalem. So they took out palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the what? King. King of Israel. You might want to circle that. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Now, two notes here. They grab palm branches. Why? Because those are the nearest and handiest things for them to grab? No, actually, not, not at all. The symbol of a palm branch had great purpose and intention. Did you know that the, in that culture, in that day, the palm branch for Jewish people of that day was actually a symbol of freedom? The last time that the nation of Israel was free, that means outside of captivity, there was something stamped on every coin in their currency. Do you know what symbol was stamped on their coins? It was a palm branch. See, this branch was more than just a convenience, this was a statement that this here comes the king who is going to set us. Free And they're calling out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. How did they all sort of know to chant that? Was there a guy in the front? Now you go, now you go. Like, how did they know how to do that? Well, they're actually pulling from an old psalm that was written by Israel's greatest king, King David. So they go all the way back to Psalm 118 to pull out this cry. Now, you don't have to turn there in the Bible. I want to put it on the screen so we can read it and see... If in the original verse there's something that isn't in their battle cry, Psalm 118, verse 25 says this Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, does it say anything there about the King of Israel? No. But the people in Jesus' day added to Psalm 118, they remixed it and added in for themselves this. Cry for a king. We're laying down palm branches to symbolize he's going to bring us freedom from our oppressors. It is coming at Passover. He is going to deliver us from the hands of our oppressors. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, our King of Israel, who will rule over our throne that we have established for him. So you see, their, their worship is sincere, just misguided their worship is wrapped up in their expectation of what they want Jesus to be and the kind of king that they expect him to be. See, they they knew all about kings. They knew all about power. And it was very common for a king when they were coming home from victory or when they were entering into a city that they had just taken to ride into the city in a grand processional, a triumphal entry, if you will, riding on the back of a war horse. Typically, the king or the emperor would be given the largest beast, the largest horse, and they would sit up higher than everyone else, and they would ride in in power into the city, looking down on all of those that they ruled. The people of Israel were expecting their king to ride in to Jerusalem on a war horse. And look at what Jesus does. John 12, verse 14, Jesus found a young what? donkey and sat on it as it's written don't be afraid daughter of zion see your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt to jesus demonstrates power in a completely upside down way he comes humbly into jerusalem slowly lowly humbly simply on a donkey and he, he wasn't out there to fulfill all their expectations. He was actually fulfilling a prophecy that was spoken about him hundreds and hundreds of years earlier by the prophet of Zechariah. Let me put this up on the screen. You don't need to turn there in your Bible. The prophet Zechariah said this hundreds of years before Jesus, about Jesus specifically. See if it rings a bell. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, this is really important. Zechariah nine ten. Look what kind of kingdom this king comes to establish. I will take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. And the battle bow will be broken because this king will proclaim peace To all nations, and his rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus comes in power, but it is a completely different kind of power. He does not come to rule with the fist, he comes to bring peace. This is who this king is. Rarely is Jesus what we expect, but he is always more than we can imagine. Rarely is he what we would expect, but he is always so much more than we could imagine. And so Jesus enters in on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah, coming in humbly, slowly, lowly into the city of Jerusalem, coming as he is and offering the same invitation to you and me. Do you know what's so powerful about this moment as Jesus is? He comes as he is into Jerusalem, and he's inviting you To do the same, he says, Look, I come as I am. This is who I am. This is my kind of power. This is how I rule. This is the kind of kingdom that I am going to build. I come as I am to you. Will you come as you are to me? All the things that you thought you had to be before you could ever come to God, all the things you wish you weren't so that you could come to God. Jesus says, I come to you as I am. Will you come to me as you are? All your fear and failure and fumbling, will you come to me? Will you come with me? Because what is so interesting is Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem, and there's great fanfare. Hosanna, Hosanna. This is a spiritual moment, but it's also a political moment, and the religious leaders see the threat that it's rising, and he enters in on this Sunday, but eventually the the chants and cheers for Hosanna would fade, only to be replaced days later by cries of, Crucify, crucify, crucify. So greatly had Jesus disappointed their expectations that they demanded his death. This is not the kind of king that we ordered. Our king was to arrive on a war horse, and he's like in an 84 Corolla. This is not what we imagined. Our king comes to rule in power, but he is coming to bring peace. Our king is here to overthrow, but he seems to be here to serve. Jesus comes in power. It's just a completely different kind of power. And he moves from that triumphal moment to a quiet table, the crowds fading, the cheers turning to chants of crucify. And Jesus gathers his followers together and he says, come and meet me at the table. Let's share one last meal together. I want you to understand this kind of, let me demonstrate for you this power that I'm talking about, this power that I'm inviting you into. And so in John 13, Jesus moves through the Holy Week. In fact, Kurt mentions On our website this whole week, we have little moments for every day for you to stop and kind of walk in the footsteps of Jesus as he comes to the cross and beyond. And so this is a couple days after the triumphal entry. Jesus tells his disciples, look, I want you to go get a room, prepare a room for us. We're going to share one last Meal here together. They have to understand the plot to destroy Jesus was in full swing. Judas had actually already betrayed him and sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus gathers his disciples together and they're all sitting waiting around the table for him and Jesus comes in no doubt from a time of quiet reflection and prayer with God into the table. What would come to stand at the center of the Christian faith. And he walks in past the front door This borrowed room, this is the Savior who had to borrow a donkey, now borrows a room for his last meal with his followers, and he sits at the table, and he sees what all of them missed. Someone had forgotten to post at the door a servant to wash everyone's feet when they walked in. Now, it was customary in that culture that when someone would have a meal like this, a significant moment like this, there would be a servant positioned at the door who would wash the feet of those entering and sometimes wash the hands ceremonially saying, look, you're clean, but also very practically because they lived in a kind of hot and arid and even dusty environment, a lot of open-toed shoes. And so there's a lot of dirt and a lot of dust and a lot of stuff clinging on to feet. And so you wouldn't want to sit intimately at a table like this with people without them having clean feet. And so there would be a servant that would be positioned there. And Jesus walks in and sits down and sees that they forgot that detail. Now, and the kind of power that we've come to expect, Jesus could have just ripped into him. Where's the servant? This is our last meal. Like, why couldn't you get this right? The guy's coming to take the photograph any moment, and you forgot to... See, like, that's a, that's a fine art joke. And you, you forgot to get a servant at the door. Could have easily just ripped and said, how could you miss this detail? Instead, what he does is he goes and takes the place Of the servant, and he demonstrates yet again what real power looks like. John 13, verse 4. Look what Jesus does. So he gets up from the meal, and he took off his outer clothing, took off his cloak, and he wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that, he poured water. Now imagine the tension in the room. Imagine the shame. Maybe the person who's supposed to secure this detail must have felt, I forgot, I missed, I forgot. And then to sit in the silence and the sound of that water pouring into that basin. And then Jesus began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And you have to imagine this moment. How would you feel? How would you feel if your master, your teacher, your savior was on his hands and knees scrubbing your dirty, filthy feet. What would race through your heart in that moment? How would you feel to see the Son of God in the lowest possible position in the room? How long does it take to wash someone's feet? I don't know, two. Three minutes. Twelve disciples do the math. That's a significant amount of time to just sit in that tension. Of Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, showing that he is not just here to save, but to serve. And I imagine as he washed their feet, he looked in their eyes, knowing full well who they are. Knowing the years of relationship that they'd had, knowing what was to come for them. And he washed and washed every one of them, including Judas, the one who would betray him including Peter, the one who would deny him. In fact, all but one of them would abandon him. And still he serves. Still he serves. And when that moment had passed in verse 12, John 13, verse 12, he finished washing their feet, he put his clothes back on, and he returned back to his place at the table. He says, look, do you you understand what I've done for you here today? Do you see what I've done for you here? You call me teacher, rabbi, you call me teacher, you call me Lord, you call me your master. And that's rightly so, because guess what? That is who I am. You're exactly right. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Now that I, the king of the universe, have lowered myself to the lowly position of a servant, don't you think you should do the same? Don't you think you should take this posture of real power and choose to serve? What kind of king is this? Who would humble himself enough to leave his throne in heaven and come to this world and deny a throne in this world only to take the position of a servant? What king would do that? Who is this? savior who comes not only to save the world from its sins but to serve this world in its greatest needs who is this jesus and by what power does he rule and reign see the triumphal entry and this last meal with his disciples are all part of one journey for jesus and that's to the ultimate display of sacrifice on the cross. He says, I'm going to demonstrate for you again and again and again and again what real power looks like. I have not come to rule by how you would define power, I am redefining power by how I rule. I am going to show you what real power is. And the demonstration and the invitation of Jesus. For what real power is, is simply this. Real power serves others. That's real power. Real power serves others. That's what real power is. Now, is that the power we tend to see from our elected officials, from the celebrities that we elevate to highest status possible? Is that the power that tends to rule organizations and corporations? Is that the power you see on display at your work? Is that the power on display in your house? Real power serves others. False power, on the other hand, always and only serves itself. Real power serves others. It says, I'm, I'm, I am here for you. False power says, no, you are here for me. And always only serves itself. There's a big difference between real power that Jesus displayed and has invited you into, and the false power that rules this world. False power sees people, sees others, only as opportunities for self-advancement. Looks at as others only as opportunities to get me ahead. You're here for me. That's what false power does. False power looks at opportunities and people, how can this move me and my agenda forward? Real power looks at people as an opportunity to serve. What might you be missing in your life and how might I be able to help? Where might there be a pain in your life that I could bring some help, some healing to? See, false power is always looking at others through the lens of itself. But real power looks through the lens of itself to the needs of others. Very different. This is the power of Jesus put on display. Power of, like, false power that rules this world constantly needs to have attention all eyes on me. False power demands attention. You, you, got, like, you ever met anyone like this? No matter what you're talking about, the conversation always seems to come back to them. No matter what example you give, they have one better. No matter how famous your famous person was, they have met someone more famous. You ever met anyone like this? Might you be someone like this? See, false power always brings it back to themselves. False power always needs to have the attention. It ultimately always needs to come back from them. They are never, ever, ever going to refuse a compliment. They are going to take it all in and milk it for all it's got. That's false power. Real power, on the other hand, embraces obscurity. I don't need my name on it. I don't need credit for that deal. My win is helping you win false power demands attention real power not only embraces seeks obscurity i will take the lowest position so low that you won't even see me serving you what was it that walter payton said when you're good at something you tell everyone about it when you're great at something they'll tell you real power doesn't need to be told false power tells everyone has to have the attention. False power is always fighting for and demanding for, sometimes on the surface, lots of times beneath the surface. They're right, the need to be right. False power has to be right at all costs, at all times, in all arguments, in all conversations. False power has the need to be right at all times. Real power lays down its rights. I'm gonna lay down my agenda. I'm gonna leave that at the door so that I can be present to serve you with whatever you may need. False power fights for control, like desperately fights, white-knuckle fights for control at all costs in all areas of their life. But real power releases control to God. It says, God, it's your world. I am your child. I trust you. False power loves triumphal entries. Real power loves the towel and the bowl of water. Jesus said, I've come that you may know and have real power. And it comes from God through me to you. And it is an upside down kind of power because this is an upside down kind of kingdom where the first are last and the last are first and the least are greatest and the greatest are least. And we seek to serve and demonstrate real power by putting others before ourselves. So the question for you this Easter and for your life is, what kind of power are you pursuing right now? What kind of power are you pursuing right now in your life? Is it a false power that needs to have attention, that needs to be right, that needs to make sure everything goes your way, that sees other people as opportunities for your own advancement? Or are you pursuing a real power that says, I am here for you. I am here to serve. I have been served by the Savior of the universe. The least I can do is serve you. What kind of power are you pursuing in your life right now? What is the thing that you're holding out there? Is it a bigger title it's a bigger influence, bigger paycheck. What is it? None of those things are bad in and of themselves. But when they are the thing that you're pursuing, you might be missing what real power really is. Real power seeks to serve. And this is what Jesus demonstrated at the triumphal entry. This is what Jesus demonstrated at the table where he gathered his followers just hours before he would be arrested and led to a cross. What would it look like for you this week to pursue real power let think about it. What would it look like for you to pursue real power at work? Now, my hunch is that your work, there's a lot of false power going on and going around. So what would it look like for you to say, I'm going to come into that environment tomorrow, and I'm going to bring a real power? Now, look, I know, like, you probably want when you show up to work tomorrow, if we be really honest, it would be great if they threw you a triumphal entry when you walked into work tomorrow. Like, Susan's here, bring out the palm branches. Like, that would be great. They're probably not going to do that tomorrow. In fact, there's going to be more demands put on you and more expectations put on you, something that Jesus can relate to. So, what would it look like for you to walk into that environment and say, I'm not here for a triumphal entry. I am here to wrap the towel around my waist and to serve. Who can you serve tomorrow? Who can you take a lower position than tomorrow? Even if it goes against your org chart, even if it goes against your company culture. Say, no, I'm here on a higher agenda. I'm a part of a bigger kingdom than this company. So I'm here to serve. And I'm going to demonstrate what real power looks like. What about when you head back to your house, your home, this afternoon, this evening? Maybe you're going back to roommates. Oh, there's a lot of of good power struggles between roommates. A lot of passive-aggressive power struggles (laughs) between roommates. Dishes left in sinks to prove a point, right? (laughs) Right? What would it look like for you, yeah, right, and some marriages too, what would it look like for you to show real power with the people that you live with in your home? What does real power look like for you to say, I'm here to serve you? How can I meet a need? I'm going to look for a need in your life that I can meet. Think about that. Maybe if you're married, maybe in your marriage, if you were to boil down all the fights you've had, do you think maybe the common denominator might come down to a struggle for power? My way versus your way? My rights versus your rights? What would it look like for you even in your marriage and your family to say, I'm here to serve? Remember those promises I made to you all those years ago? Tomorrow, today, I'm going to fulfill them. I'm here to serve and to start bringing real power into your marriage and into your home by refusing to have it to be right and to lay down your rights and seek to serve. What would it look like for you? What would it look like for you this Easter to say, now I'm here to serve. The Savior of the universe can serve me. I can certainly serve you. That's what I love about our church. There's plenty of opportunities to get involved with what God's doing here. Kurt talked about it. You can go online and check it out. I'm not going to spend a ton of time talking about it. There's a lot of opportunities to serve this week and this Easter weekend. What would it look like for you to say, you know, I'm not just going to be a spectator this Sunday. I'm going to participate in what God's doing. I'm going to experience real power by helping to serve around here on Saturday or on Sunday, whatever it might look like. I don't know what or where or with whom, but my hunch is you probably do. In fact, there's probably someone, as I've been talking to you, go, anyone but them. Maybe start there. Maybe start with them. How can you seek to serve and demonstrate real power in that relationship this week? What kind of power Are you going to pursue? See, Jesus didn't stop with the water and the towel. He said, I want to show you what real power looks like. I'm going to lay down my life for you. I'm going to literally offer up my body, my blood for you so that you can have access to, you can experience this power in your life. And so at the very same table that Jesus gathered his disciples, at the very same table where he had just washed his feet, he, he looked across at each of them, making eye contact with every one of them, and said, I don't want you to miss how like, incredibly significant this is. And so he took common elements. He took bread, and he took wine, he said, I want you to pay attention to this. This is what stands at the center of a relationship with God, what I am about to do for you. And Jesus took the bread, and he broke the bread, and he said, I want you to always remember that this bread is like my body, broken for you. Remember that that God actually came to be with you. Jesus said, I am here. God is here with you. And I offer my body to be broken for you. And then he took wine and he poured it into a cup. And he said, I don't ever want you to forget this. The lengths to which I will go to serve. He said, this cup is to remind you of my blood poured out freely and fully for the forgiveness of your sins. There is not a thing you can do that the blood of Jesus cannot cover. There is not a thing that you've done that the blood of Jesus can't cover. And you may have convinced yourself that you are exempt from his serving and saving power, but that simply is not true. And Jesus says, I pour it out freely so that every time you see it and every time you think of it, you remember that God not only came to be with you, but that I gave my life for you. This is real power, that I would humble myself not only to washing feet, but that I would humble myself to a cross, that I would be God's lamb selected by him for the covering of your sin. So we've created some space to come to the table today. We've put it right in the middle of the room because that is exactly where it stands in the Christian faith you don't get to God past the body and blood of Jesus. And our invitation to you is to come as you are, to a Savior who has come as he is in all his glory and all his humility to not only save but to serve. So in a moment, I'm going to pray. And when I do, I'm going to invite you over the next few moments to come to the table. And it's real simple. You take a piece of bread, you break it off, you you dip it in the cup, you take a moment and say the body and the blood of Christ, you come as you are, and maybe you need to do some stuff to kind of clear some stuff in your heart with God, maybe you need to make a commitment at the table that this week you are going to seek real power and not false power any longer in your life. Whatever it is that you need to say, I'd invite you to say it, do what you need to do, but come as you are to the table today, break off the bread, and dip it in the cup, and you have a moment with this Savior, servant, King, In the middle of the table, there's gluten-free bread. If you need that, you can head right to the middle. You can come when you're ready. Come as you're ready. And then we're going to sing a song of worship declaring our true Hosanna, the one who has come to save us from our sin. So let me pray for us, and then we'll gather around the table together. Jesus, uh, who are we without you? Who am I without you? that you would not only come and save, but that you would serve, that you would take the lowest position possible and then turn around and invite me to do the same. Thank you, Jesus, that you demonstrated that you did not invite us into something that you were not willing to go through first yourself. You offered your life for us on a cross, raised by God from the dead, And then you invite us into this lifestyle with you of real power where we seek to serve whoever we're with, wherever we're at. And so I pray as we come to the table today that we would be reminded of the lengths to which you have gone to extend your love, that you have eliminated every barrier that we thought would keep us from you so that we could come as we are to you today. So Jesus, thank you for your body and blood. Thank you that you chose to take the posture of a servant. And thank you that you've invited us to do the same today. It's in your name that we pray and come and sing.